to Paul's first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy. That is found on page 993 in the Pew Bibles. First Timothy five, and our will begin in verse seventy, verse seventeen, down to the end of the chapter. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, how should we treat good leaders in the church? Two, what should be done if there are bad leaders? And three, why is it so important to pray for church leaders? First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, or sorry, prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. And your word is truth. Your word is powerful. And your word is instructive in all that we need to know for faith and for life. And to glorify and honor you. And for how to manage this church that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray now as we move from the preaching of that which is breathed out by you, inspired by you, to the preaching of your word that you would help us. Send your spirit in a special way to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear this morning to receive from you. So we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I almost didn't want to return to where I left off last week. I dealt with the first part of this passage, and it was very positive. How to deal with the elders among you. I didn't really want to pick up on it, because as we left on a positive note, we also have to deal with some negative stuff. The Bible is realistic. The Bible is realistic, and it will address problems that will inevitably arise in the church setting, and they need to be dealt with appropriately. So from a positive side to turning it upside down to look at the underbelly 
of some things that can go on in a church. And this has to do with elders in general. My focus is going to be on that which we call clergy or church staff that are ordained to the ministry. I'll kind of mention both along the way, but the focus will be on mostly preachers and teachers formally ordained to the ministry. Of course, the main concern is for the integrity of the church, for the glory of God in the church, and that souls would be ministered to and that the kingdom would advance. The problem is that sometimes leadership can have bad eggs among them, and it's true that what we call ruling elders, those who are not preachers and teachers but have authority in the church, can influence churches negatively because of their own issues and their own intentions. And so there can be troublesome ruling elders who damage churches with strife and corruption. But when the pastor or pastors are bad eggs, it causes especially bad problems as they give into sinful patterns. Some people in leadership, some pastors, start off that way. They should have never been ordained to begin with. They weren't thoroughly vetted. Others, because of various temptations that they give into, get that way and also need to be dealt with. So last time, we were looking at how Timothy was instructed to have good leaders encouraged. And so brief review of that. First, they're to be honored if they're good leaders. Again, the focus primarily on preaching and teaching pastoral staff. We wanted to look at ruling elders. The qualifications are spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Preached on that. We dealt with that. I won't go back to that now. But on top of that, those who are clergy not only need to have those things in order, but they need to be gifted in a number of other areas. And they need to have their priorities straight. But all these things need to be necessary. So last time I talked about my own little contrived formula of the priority of the way that we need to look at church leaders, especially pastors, in examining them. And they all mesh together, but if I were going to prioritize things, I would obviously start with conversion. We should not have unconverted people in the pulpit. We should not be ordaining unconverted people. Secondly, they have to have their concerns in order. Not themselves, but Christ is to be preeminent in their ministry, and the souls of the people are to be in focus as well. Third is character. They have to be people of integrity. And then fourth, and again, they're all together. You can't miss any of these. They have to be sound. Sound in their understanding of the Bible, upholding the Bible as the authoritative word of God, and then their doctrine soundly in accord with what Scripture teaches. And then lastly, which some people put first, is they need to have some degree of talent and giftedness of communication so they can bring the word to people. That's just a little summary of the order. Those kinds of people, those kinds of leaders should be encouraged. And Paul says they should be encouraged basically in two ways. They should be esteemed because of their office, but also their behavior in their office. But secondly, they should be honored by being paid adequate salaries. So that was the awkward part that I didn't want to talk about last week, but I did anyway, because it's in God's Word. The problem is that anyone appointed or ordained to leadership, while they might be qualified and they ought to be encouraged, the problem is they're sinners. And sin complicates everything. 
No one really likes to think of elders and pastors as sinners. Some of us are more obvious sinners than others. Uh, We share sin in common with everybody else, but with offices in the church, there are unique challenges, there are unique temptations. There can be wrong ambitions, there can be wrong motives, there can definitely be wrong attitudes. Uh, Pastors, frankly, can be annoying. No amens, thank you. Uh, Pastors can be annoying, they can be forgetful, they can be insensitive, they can be boring. All those things should be addressed. But that's not really the focus of what Paul is concerned about here. He's concerned about more serious kinds of things, not character flaws, not things that, that need to be and should be tweaked, but things that are definitely sinful things that have an impact on others. When, when the sins of leadership impact the body of Christ, that becomes a problem that the leadership in the church itself has to deal with. That's where Paul is going here with Timothy. When sins begin to affect other people and the body, it must be brought to attention. Now, the normal practice of normal offenses, Matthew 18 needs to be followed. Go to them first, and then if they don't listen to you, go with another person. If they don't listen to you, go to another person. Then then you go to the church, in other words, the leadership. The problem comes in where leaders are already in that public realm. So preachers and teachers in the church, by virtue of their position, are already in that public realm, and so their sins are public and need to be dealt probably more immediately publicly. And so when there are obvious sins, they need to be dealt with. The bad needs to be dealt with. Again, Timothy's already in a leadership position, and he has responsibility, so he's already at that accountability level. Now, there are issues of error, issues of heresy. That's dealt with a lot in Paul's letters. Those things are prominent. I'm not going to emphasize that this morning because it's dealt with so pointedly elsewhere. Uh, all that should be covered under this, but it's got its own unique way, its own unique beast when there's error and heresy. But we're dealing with a whole realm of moral issues that can consume the leadership. Just as one reminder of many's what many what that looks like, if you go to Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter five, verse nineteen, this gives us some categories. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness orgies, and things like that. As I I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are some categories. Real offenses. Real offenses. So, So again, regular sins should be addressed personally. Things like hurt feelings and oversights and shortcomings. But these things, these kinds of things, need to be dealt with directly dealt with directly, things in these categories that are damaging to others, to self, and to the body of Christ. Now, there are many horror stories in all these categories of pastors and church leaders. Big newsworthy scandals, many big names fell big time. 
And I don't need to give you a list of names. In fact, it would take me quite a while if I think back on my short history of being a Christian, how many prominent church leaders I've seen fall dramatically. But the fact of the matter is, it's very common, sadly, around the world, around the globe, and in our country as well, to have corrupt leadership. It's tragic. There are horror stories. I'm going to categorize some of the things And some of these things are not necessarily prominent stories. They're ones, most of which I know of firsthand. They're not big newsworthy scandals, but they're things that have sometimes destroyed churches. Sexual immorality. How many times have we heard of pastors running off with somebody in the church? One of my predecessors in one of my churches, that's what ended his ministry. I had a friend who was the wife of a pastor, hadn't seen her for many years, and I was told by her that for many years she had to sit in the pew knowing that her husband was involved in totally inappropriate material that he was regularly looking at. And she had to sit there and suffer under this pastor who was held up as a pedestal in a church before she couldn't take it anymore. An acquaintance of mine involved in counseling fell into a same-sex dalliance, ended his ministry, ended his marriage. That one's very prominent, isn't it? Money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Pastors are not exempt from that. Elders are not exempt from that. One of the first discipline cases I was exposed to once I was ordained was a man who had soaked many people at his former church for money. Borrowed lots and lots of money, never paid it back. The church I was familiar with hadn't checked into his past and he did the exact same thing at that church. But money drives so many So many. Stories of pastors who manipulate and shift funds, sometimes with the approval of deacons to their benefit. Sex, money, alcohol, drugs, all those things. You know, of a poor wife who for years had to deal with her alcoholic pastor husband. And it wasn't until she couldn't take the verbal abuse and the destruction to her family anymore until she finally went to her elders and then that went to the next level and the next level where he was finally disciplined and his ministry was over. This one might sound odd, politics. Politics can be a great distraction beating a cultural political drum so loudly that you hardly hear the gospel anymore and they get consumed with this other interest. That, in my estimation, is a form of corruption. So much focus on candidates and politics, you almost forget who the true king of heaven, the true king of earth, the true king of the church is. And then there's abuse and divisiveness. Oddly, this seems to be the most prominent thing I've heard of lately in churches. Where pastors want to control and they're power mongers. 
I know of a man who was an elder in a church and he managed to anoint himself, in other words, uh, ordain himself as the pastor of a church and somehow took control of the church and literally locked anybody physically out of the facility who didn't agree with him. And so you see how these things can get out of control. And all those things are material for legitimate complaints. Legitimate complaints. Churches need to pick up on patterns. Leadership needs to pick up on patterns. I'm so thankful in so many ways to be a Presbyterian, and it's no guarantee, but I am accountable to the elders and the deacons, but the elders, the deacons, and the congregation here. Where there's no accountability, there's definitely a heightened danger of corruption. Again, picking up on patterns, the, the sexual things, the most, it's the most notorious, if not the most prominent thing that happens in the ministry. But when there's inappropriate contact, contents, contacts, secret meetings, things that shouldn't be, inappropriate interaction, those things need to be picked up on. Shady financial practices, big expense accounts. If, if a pastor is living a country club life, unless they've got some other tremendous source of income, that should be suspect. Alcohol, drugs, patterns of misuse, abuse. I wonder in some circumstances where I'm not able to indulge or divulge information how I know of bad patterns in other pastors' lives before it's ever dealt with in their churches, sometimes for years, and I'm in this awkward position where I can't say anything. Again, that politics thing. When pastors get so focused on shooting at the left or shooting at the right or whatever it is that they want to do and neglecting the gospel. And then abuse. Those unteachable, intolerable pastors who can become downright arrogant. I'm being blunt with you. How come these things aren't addressed in churches? How come so many of these kinds of things are left to stew and brew um, until they become some ugly, nasty thing in a church? I'm going to suggest seven reasons why I think we don't follow what the Bible tells us to follow. And I'll do it kind of quickly. I don't want to belabor these things. I, on occasion, have to make up words because I can't find the right words, so excuse my making up words here. First of all, six, sorry, seven isms. Seven isms. Why we don't follow what the Bible says when it comes to approaching corrupt leadership. The first one is dominism. Now, those of you with a Dutch background will know what that means because in the old Dutch tradition, the pastor was called a domini, and he was held up on a pedestal, and I think that's still true in some ways. But this idea of dominism, not our pastor. After all, he's a man of the cloth. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do this. People, when will we learn 
When will we learn? Pastors, like everyone else, have feet of clay and are prone to all kinds of temptations. Don't ever put them up on a pedestal. Number two, too niceism. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We just don't want to hurt the pastor's feelings. We're concerned about his wife's feelings. We're concerned about their children's feelings. We're concerned. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. By the way, I think you could probably add to some of these. Uh, Cronyism. Cronyism. A situation in which you have a leadership situation where there's manipulation among the leaders and there's sycophant followers and leadership groups can become protectionist and protect, protect other leaders and sometimes protect their pastors to a fault, to where people are afraid to be whistleblowers because they'll be marginalized or they'll be accused. Don't dare come to the leadership, I've heard it said, if you're going to say something negative about the pastor. Bad practice. So dominiism, too-niceism, cronyism, professionalism. Large megachurches deal with that at, on one angle. We, we never confront their issues, whether it's moral or doctrinal, because you can't argue with success. Look at the size of their churches. Look how popular they are. They've got 20 books out there. Their name is, everybody knows their name. How can you argue with them? And so then you have the small churches who say, we simply need someone to steer the ship, and if we don't keep this guy, what's going to happen? And so there's that idea, we need a professional. Then there's hyper non-judgmentalism. Who am I to accuse anyone else of sin? There's escapism. It's just easier to ignore it. Or, if it bothers me too much, I'll just go somewhere else. And then finally, and this one may sound like a stretch, but non-Presbyterianism. But a lack of understanding of what biblical church government is and the way that accountability is built into that system. There's, there's a good reason why church government is one of the core beliefs of this church. Because we believe it's the most biblical form of government. It's not perfect because we're not perfect, but it's checks and balances. Well, undergirding all of these things, I believe, is fear. Fear of something or other. Fear of man, fear of causing trouble, fear of this, fear of that, fear of the other thing. I think what Paul is saying here is, take courage. There is a process to follow. And it's a process designed to protect both the accusers and the accused. Two or three witnesses is a biblical means to accuse anyone of anything. That protects the accusers because you're not just doing this alone. It's not just some vindictive pet peeve that you might have. And so, so you have a balance there. But it also protects 
clergy and leaders from getting falsely accused. So that's why Paul says, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. The accusers have to be protected and the accused, clergy. All pastors, all pastors, no matter what Nathaniel Hawthorne might write in his books, are not bad guys with some dark motive attached to what they're doing. And so there's this process. Again, Presbyterian process works well. We take ordination seriously. And when someone is accused, we need to do things properly in order and we strive to. The key is repentance, isn't it? Whenever there's sin. So if you're personally accused of a sin, or a pastor or an elder is personally accused of a sin, what is your first reaction? No one's answering. No, I didn't expect you to answer. What's your first reaction? You're, you're usually probably not delighted, but what really should be your first reaction? I think the best first reaction, in my humble opinion, is to say, well, what is it that I did that's either perceived as sin or maybe is real sin? So deal with self, and that's what clergy has to do. The first thing isn't to to justify yourself. And if there's sin recognized, either I did something wrong or it's perceived as wrong, I need to repent. And I need to deal with that. And either I need to deal with it personally or publicly. But Paul says, though, if they're unrepentant, They also need to be dealt with, and it needs to be made public. All to the glory of God. That might sound strange. We're so afraid sometimes to to do that act of discipline, public discipline, because we're afraid what the world's going to think. We're afraid if we had a scandal in our church that no one would come to our church. Here's a little anecdote. When I was still in seminary, I was going to one church, But there was a church in the area that was very popular, very lively, sweet fellowship, lively worship, good connectedness in the body of Christ, known in the area for good leadership. Well, I had a Sunday off from the church where I was ministering as an intern, and I visited this church, and I was expecting this very happy, joyous atmosphere, and I walked in, and the church was as solemn as you could ever imagine. And there were noticeably a number of people mourning. And I went in unaware of what was going on, but soon found out that there was a scandal between a deacon and maybe an elder's wife. I don't remember the exact scenario. It involved four different couples. One couple was repentant. The other couple was unrepentant. The church dealt with it directly, humbly, with great grief, which was appropriate, but unashamed to follow the biblical principles of following discipline, even of their leadership. And to be honest, I left there far more blessed and impressed than if it had been the happiest, clappiest church on the face of the earth. 
And so it's all ultimately to the glory of God, and it might be surprising on how that works. Well, the third point, and I want to drive this home, is that it, again, is all to the glory of God, but nothing is hidden. Nothing's hidden from God. Look at verse 21, and again, let this be drilled into your mind and into your heart as a member of the church, but also as leaders in the church. This is so important to remember that we are in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. And Paul says that there are, the sins of some are conspicuous. Those are almost the easiest ones to deal with. To to tell you the truth, the the difficult ones to deal with are the most nuanced ones. I've been in church discipline situations where I, I almost wished that it was a more vivid, graphic sin that we could just point to the exactness of it and say, this is what happened and this went wrong. And this needs to be dealt with. And there are cases where The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Now, we've seen in public scandals, we've seen maybe in local scandals, that that things can go on for a long time, but eventually someone's sin finds them out. The fact of the matter is that some people seem to get away with stuff for a long time, even up until the end of their life. But make no mistake, no one's getting away with anything, ever. And when it comes to the church, the church is no place for corruption of any form. And if the leadership does not discipline unruly members there's going to be a real problem. And if unruly leadership isn't disciplined by the checks and balances of the church, there's going to be a real problem. Well, God is aware. And God has given us instructions on how to manage the church and deal with issues of discipline. And all will give an account. And so we go back again, to the primary concern of Christ's church, and that is to glorify God, to exalt Christ, to be a witness to the world, to feed her people and to be a witness to the world. And so things need to be in order to that end. May God grant us the grace as a church to be a church that glorifies God. We operate in a way that's pleasing in his sight church that glorifies God, exalts Jesus Christ, is very obviously in step with the Holy Spirit. A church that ministers to one another and a church that's a witness to the world around us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on the church. Lord, have mercy on our church. Let's pray. And Lord, you are merciful. And you are kind. You've been so merciful and kind to this church in particular. And we don't take that for granted at all. Or at least we trust that we don't. We pray that you would be with our men in leadership. 
that you would protect us from the wiles of the devil that come at us in a unique way because of our position. That you would teach us to flee temptation. To be men of full integrity, sobriety, morality. Help our leadership. Be with our elders and our deacons. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as a body as a whole, that we would have our priorities straight. That our focus would be on the glory of you, our great God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would protect and keep this church by your mighty hand. Lord, that you would use this church for your greatest glory. And we pray this in the name of the King and Head of the church and the king and head of this church.